All right, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Monday Night Law. I'm Joe Kenya, and I'm with uh, my co-host Rob Kleiner. And uh, thanks for uh, listening in. We've got uh, an interesting topic to discuss today. It will be the uh, basics of contract law. Uh, but before we get into that, Rob, I suppose we should go with the, uh, you know, the uh, legal disclaimer. Right, right. Uh, what what is this we're recording, Joe? <laughs> well, we're recording a a podcast that is educational and entertainment, but not necessarily legal advice. So this is legal advice, right? Uh, no, Rob, it's not legal advice. As you know, the law does vary with its many intricacies everywhere, but uh, still should be very educational and hopefully entertaining as well. So if I have a case in court, I just bring this podcast, and I don't need a lawyer or anything, I just bring this in and I win my case. Well, as long as you uh, mark it as evidence and lay a foundation, Rob. No, we're just kidding, though. <laughs> no, this would not, not suffice in court, but uh, I think you could learn a thing or two. It's education and entertainment, and, uh, that, and we hope you enjoy it. That's right. So uh, we thought uh, we'd discuss some basics of contract law tonight. And really, if you think about it, contract law is really one of the real foundations of law in itself. It's, is there an agreement between two parties? Um, and so, to get into that, I thought we'd start off the good old case of Carlyle versus the Carbolic Spokeball. One of my cases, and really one of the foundational cases of contract law. If you were to walk in to law school right now, in your very first contracts class, any law school throughout the country, it's very likely that this case, Carlyle versus Carbolic Smokeball, uh, would be the first case that you would discuss in your class. It's probably the most famous Smokeball case. Uh, at least one of them, wouldn't you say, Rob? I'm not aware of any others. All right, so let me let me set the stage for our uh, our viewing audience. And before we do that, I do want to thank uh, Paul the Paralegal for doing a great job filling in for me last week. Uh, and we're glad that you're feeling better. That's Thank, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Really one of the great, one of the sharpest legal minds uh, with real estate around and did a great job. So, But getting back to the carbolic smoke ball, I'm going to take the audience back to the 1890s. Okay, You're probably, 1890s London, I should add, is where common law, which the United States adopted, really originated. You're probably reading the latest collection of Arthur, Con Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, maybe your neighbor, it could be a blacksmith, right? They had those in those days, right, Rob? I guess, I, you know, Sounds it's like, not something I looked into, yeah. but... Uh, so maybe your neighbor, the blacksmith, or, <clears throat> you know, the bread maker, he might have a cough, right? And you're worried, because there's a thing going around called the influenza. And it has, like, a scary name, a lot of people died, and they say it's a pandemic, right? But you're not really sure what it was, but it involves a cough, okay? So you open your, your Pall Mall Gazette one fine Sunday morning. You're not afflicted, but you can hear your neighbor's cough from across the yard. So you're a, little, you're a little concerned. And there in the Pall Mall Gazette, in a large ad, is the Carbolic Smoke Ball. Now, would you recommend, if I thought I had the flu, that I take Carbolic Smoke Ball today in 2015? Well, this isn't legal advice, Rob. <laughs> but I would say no. <laughs> Use something more modern, okay? Like a neti pot. What is a neti pot, Rob? Do you know? I don't know. I don't either. I was wondering if the Carbolic Smoke Ball was the original neti pot. The Carbolic Smoke Ball, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, as was stated in the ad in the Pall Mall Gazette in the early 1890s, is a rubber tube attached to a rubber ball. 
you breathe in vapors through your nose. Is that what a neti pot is? Yeah, I don't know either. Sounds like something no similar. Idea. Yeah. No idea. Anyway, so you breathe in these vapors through this rubber tube through a rubber <clears> ball. And the ad said, if you do this three times daily for two weeks, and I want this to sound sort of like a modern car salesman, all right? Ladies and gentlemen, what you need with this influenza going around is the carbolic smoke ball. It's a miraculous uh, rubber tube with uh, connected to a rubber ball. You breathe in these vapors three times daily for two weeks, and there have been no cases ever connected with anybody who follows those instructions who have ever contracted the influenza virus. Sounds amazing, Joe. Yeah, exactly. It does, doesn't it? And this ad further stated, anybody who will purchase the carbolic smoke ball and abide by those rules three times daily for two weeks using it according to instructions. If you contract the influenza after using those instructions, we will pay you 100 British pounds sterling. Do you know how much 100 British pounds sterling in 1892 is today? Ruffle, no roughly the equivalent of $16,000 today. So. The carbolic smoke ball ad said you use this device according to instructions, and if you get the flu, we'll pay you uh, 100 British British pounds, 16,000 dollars today. And to show the seriousness of the ad, the ad in the Pall Mall Gazette said we have put 1,000 British pounds into a nearby bank on Regent Street to show how serious we are about uh, living up to this. Um, you know, this promise, or is it a contract, Rob? That is the question. And it's a good question. It is. I bet there are a lot of people today who would willingly get the flu <laughs> for, for less than $16,000. <laughs> That's probably true, Rob, but let's get back to 1892, shall we? <laughs> anyway, Louisa Carlil used the carbolic smoke, bill, smoke ball as directed three times daily for two weeks and she got the flu on January the 17th, 1892, roughly 88 years before I was born. Cha-ching. To the day, yes. So <laughs> she said, hey, I saw your ad in the paper. I got the flu. I used it as directed. You owe me 100 English pounds. Now, you may be shocked to learn that the Carbolic Smokeball Company denied Miss Carlil her claim, and it went to court. What do you think happened, Rob? Well, I guess it depends on whether or not she had a contract. That's right, Rob. <laughs> Did she have a contract? And that's where we get into why this case is discussed as the seminal case in law school. The, the, the four major elements of a contract, which are offer, acceptance, consideration, and the intent to le be legally bound. And there are a few others, but those are really the main four that go to the heart of this case. So the Carbolic Smokeball, first of all, said, there's no offer here. You know, we just said this this was puffery. We were just puffing our, our smoke ball up, which is, I guess, kind of uh, pertinent considering it was vapors that were going out. But, you know, nonetheless, and the court said, well, this wasn't just, just puffery here. And you know why? It was specific. You said anybody who used it this specific number of times for a specific duration would be entitled to a specific amount of money, and we mean to be bound by this legally, the second part, of a contract because we have guaranteed that we have money set aside in this particular bank. So thereby you have an offer and you also have an intent to be legally bound. 
Is there an acceptance? Of course. Miss Carlyle used the ball as delineated by the advertisement. And this also goes to a unilateral contract, which this is used also in law school. This isn't a bilateral contract where I say, hey, Rob, uh, I'll pay you $100 to mow my lawn where the offer is only to Rob, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this was to an invitation to the public, which shows that you don't have to have a specific person in mind in a contract for it to be deemed a, a binding contract. Right, whoever mows my lawn gets the $100. If you put it with specific, uh, like the smoke ball did, I have the money set aside, and you know, uh, it ha would have to be very specifically laid out, as this was. That's why it was an offer and to be legally bound in a unilateral situation. And then, so you have an offer, you have the intent to be bound, you have the acceptance, she used it as prescribed, and then do you have consideration? The smoke ball said there's no consideration. What is consideration? It is value and detriment. In the example I used with Rob about uh, mowing the lawn for $100, I'm getting the value of Rob mowing my lawn to the detriment of me giving him the $100. Rob is getting the value of the $100 mm -hmm. to the detriment of him having to mow my lawn. And money for labor. Exactly. Break it down. And the judges ruled in Carbolic Smoke Ball. The Carbolic Smoke Ball company was getting the consideration. They were getting the value of people because of the ad buying the smoke ball. They were getting the money for that to the detriment of them having to pay up if their advertisement, if their offer went wrong. And the people who abided by their advertisement, they had the value of, if it went right, the smoke ball working or them getting the the, the, the recompense of the of the advertisement, but at the detriment of having them having to buy the smoke ball and using it uh, three times daily for two weeks. So you have an offer, you have acceptance, you have the consideration, and you have the intent to be legally bound based on the specificity. Now this differs from Leonard versus PepsiCo, which happened in the 1990s, and you have to be real careful about puffery. Because in that case, and many of the uh, listening audience might remember, there was an advertisement for Pepsi where they were giving away something called Pepsi points. To get Pepsi stuff. Yeah, I Pepsi that, stuff, yeah. yeah. If you bought enough Pepsi to get 50 points, you get a t-shirt. If you buy enough Pepsi to get 200 points, you get uh, uh, a gym bag or something I like think that. at the lowest level, if you got enough Pepsi, you get a free Pepsi. Free Pepsi, yeah. You couldn't put it in the machine, but you know they'd mail it to you or something, right? <laughs> I think uh, you showed them a bottle cap or something. Bottle cap, yeah. okay. A vendor would give it to you. But in the ad, and I specifically do remember this, there was a kid who had like six million Pepsi points, and he turned in for a Harrier jet. An inordinate amount of Pepsi points. Yes. More than they could have anticipated any one person. And that... Cost ladies and gentlemen, is the difference between puffery and a legitimate offer and an intent to be legally bound. The judges ruled in the PepsiCo case that nobody could possibly expect that Pepsi was being serious, had an intent to be legally bound to offering a Harrier jet to somebody who would get such an inordinate, or inordinate amount of Pepsi points. Or any other million dollar piece of <laughs> yeah, military exactly. equipment. It right. was, this is a multi-million dollar piece of equipment it's huge and very expensive exactly Rob and now we did offer we did acceptance we did consideration we showed the difference between puffery and an actual offer and the intent to be legally bound there's also another element of a binding contract that's capacity you have to be uh, 
have the capacity to engage in a legal contract. And that often means you have to be 18 or over or have the mental capacity to engage into a contract. So as there is a real legitimate meeting of the minds uh, regarding uh, what is going on as far as the back and forth of the contract. And Rob, I've heard you have an interesting story about what it's like to be a, a minor that shows the incapacity to engage in a contract. So When, uh, when I was underage, when I was in uh, eighth grade, I think it was, <clears throat> I got a CD player. I saved up you know, my allowance and I got this Koss portable CD player. It was a big deal at the time. It wasn't as fancy as uh, a Sony Discman. It didn't have the anti-skip capabilities. So if I ever actually got into a song, it would skip like crazy because... Because it was a cost? A little, no, there's this Chinese vibration okay. would, just, <laughs> would, would just rocket the disc in such a way that it would be all over the place. So I had to enjoy my music uh, you know, in a straitjacket. <laughs> I think this is probably something that, that uh, people in the iPod generation, the you know, broadband, internet, and everything, I don't know if people remember this that well, but with uh, CDs, and even then it was you know, cutting edge, like, you didn't have to rewind your CDs was a big deal. You oh, could yeah. jump to any song you wanted. Uh, so I got a CD player, and the biggest thing about CD players is you need CDs to make them useful. I had one CD that was a birthday present, and I had a CD player, and I wanted more CDs, but they were expensive. They had these things called CD clubs. Like Columbia House or something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to specify any particular names, but you know, it was that was purely hypothetical on my part. <laughs> they had these these ads. They say four CDs for a penny. You know, right. something like that. So I signed up for this deal. You get four CDs for a penny, and and the other, the rest of your contractual obligation was you have to buy two CDs from this CD club at regular price, and then you can cancel your membership. But if you don't, then they'll send you CDs constantly, and whatever they send you, you have to pay for it. So I got my four CDs for a penny. I bought two CDs at regular price, and all in all, it was a good deal at the time because you know when you're getting your four CDs for practically free. Their list prices for CDs are a little expensive, but on average, you're doing pretty well. Oh, yeah. So I got my CDs, and I, I wanted to quit the club. And uh, being only 14, I was not really skilled at writing letters and, and <laughs> didn't know anything about contracts. So I just wrote a letter, Dear Sir, uh, I quit the club, signed Robert Kleiner. <laughs> and I sent it in. And they kept sending CDs. I told my dad, I quit the club. I don't know why they're sending me CDs. He wanted to know what I sent in. We had a a fax machine. This is before you'd have scanners and things. So before I mailed the letter, I scanned a copy of it, faxed myself a copy of it, whatever, on that that you know foil-like paper that comes in a big roll. You had to tear it. It was a whole production. And uh, so I had a copy. He looked at the letter, one sentence long. <laughs> and uh, I think he realized why they weren't taking the letter seriously. Uh, but he wrote a letter saying that Robert Kleiner is a minor and cannot enter into contracts and we therefore ask that you stop sending him CDs. And I think that ended it right It did the trick because a minor in almost, almost all cases, there are a few exceptions, mm -hmm. cannot uh, legally have the capacity to enter a contract, which would be a fifth, a fifth requirement uh, aside from offer acceptance, consideration, and the intent to be legally bound. Just as an aside to the uh, Kerbalk Smokeball case, interesting to note that uh, the guy who wrote the Carbox Smokeball ad, he died at the age of 57 of tuberculosis. Miss Carlil, who sued, who used it, and it didn't work, she lived to the age of 96, but she did die of the flu. Jeez. <laughs> well, 
Luckily, uh, she knew not to take Carbolic's yeah. milk ball again. Yeah. Ultimately, she did get her money, so that's a good thing. Which, from the law perspective, I guess she won. <laughs> but maybe there's some poetic justice there as well. That's right. Let me ask you a question about uh, uh, competence to enter into a contract. We talked about how minors uh, can't be held accountable for their contracts in most cases. Right. Can they enforce contracts they enter into even though they can't be enforced against them? Well, that's a great question, Rob. Um, I think that they, if they uh, aren't competent to be able to enter into a contract, in and of itself it's not enforceable. I'd have to double check on that. Uh, but I think in and of itself, if they, they enter into it, it's, uh, it could be voided. Um, do you know any, uh, any contrary to law on that? I wasn't sure what it was in yeah. Delaware. I was under the impression that even though it couldn't necessarily be enforced against them, because the other party doesn't have the defense of, of being uh, a that minor. That they could enforce it against they might be else. able to. Yeah. I'm not sure. So maybe that's something mm, That's very possible. That's something time. we should look into for next time, yeah. I wasn't trying to catch you off guard. No, it's a great question, really. Yeah. Well, uh, there was another uh, issue I wanted to bring up, and that's the statute of frauds, which some people say should really be called the statute against frauds. And I think a lot of people, when they think of contracts, they really think of a written contract. But you can have unwritten contracts. Absolutely. You can have an oral contract. And so the statute of frauds is really just the law that talks about when a contract must be in writing and when it is not required to be in writing. Absolutely. Uh, do you want to go through some of those examples? Sure. I mean, uh, maybe not an exhaustive list, but for instance... A contract for marriage would have to be, uh, have to be in writing. Right, right. Mm -hmm. If you uh, had a sale of goods valued at more than $500, you know, under the Uniform Commercial Code, which I think all states have adopted, at least in some form, that would require a contract. Um, a contract uh, for interest in land would have mm -hmm. to be in, have to be in writing, um, as well as help me out here. There, <laughs> uh, service contract for more th for a year or more. A year or more. That was what I was going for. Yeah. Uh, anything that cannot be completed within a year would have to be in writing under the statute of frauds. Yeah. So if someone is. Uh, hired to be president of CNN, for instance, <laughs> and they have a five-year contract, yeah. that would probably have to be in writing. It would, it would have to be in writing, yes. Very good, Rob. Now, uh, uh, there's an interesting uh, other issue that many people are curious about. It's called promissory estoppel with contracts. Uh, do, you know, do you know anything about that, Rob? Well, we talked about how there are the four elements that you highlighted that contracts generally need to have. Offer. Offer, acceptance, acceptance, consideration, consideration, intent to be bound, legally. Intent to be bound. For example, if and for again for intent to be legal, legally bound, it has to do with specificity, as it was with the Carbox smoke ball, with the laying out uh, that they had money set aside in a bank, which was really, you know, a you know crux element to the case. Um, if I said to Rob, if we were kids, and I said, I you know, or you know, a brother and sister say, I'll give you my. Yeah, two of my Halloween candies if you clean my room. There's no intent to be legally bound there, aside from the fact that they're minors. <laughs> it would be, yeah. right. to two points, illustrate two points at once, but, uh, but go ahead with the... Uh, sure, well, I think the idea is having those formal requirements to a contract uh, says that a contract is more than just a mere promise. So someone says, hey, I'm having a party on Saturday night, you want to come? And the person says, yeah, I promise I'll be there. That's a promise, but is that the kind of promise where there's bargain for consideration? There, there really isn't. They, they say you can come over to my house and in exchange, yeah, is there a benefit you're going to bring a pie. Yeah. 
you know, it's really a stretch. It tends to be legally bound by that. No. Right. Yeah. I don't think anyone who says, I'm going to come to your party, expects that if they don't show up, that they'll see you in court. <laughs> right. Uh, and most social hosts, I don't think, care that much that they would take you to court. But there are some promises that are legally enforceable. And uh, uh, this is where promissory estoppel comes in. So let's say uh, that, that uh, we were a charity. So they like, you know, NPR has their pledge week. Mm -hmm. And they say, if you give a dollar a day, I think that's their big thing. They're saying this dollar a day contribution, $365 a year to be a member of NPR. And they give you some, you know, token gift uh, in exchange. And you promise to pledge throughout the year. So say that you know you pledge January one, and you give thirty one dollars for January, and then you say, you know what, I got my tote bag. I don't really want to give to NPR anymore. Imagine, imagine not knowing your days of the month and giving thirty one dollars in the month of September. Wouldn't that be a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> I guess yeah. I guess you just paid for October one. <laughs> but it, at any rate, so you, you start giving, even though you promised to give for a whole year, you only give for some part of it, and uh, NPR or whatever charity says, well, we were really planning on having that money. We set our schedule. We hired employees. We bought, uh, you know, our, our signal waves from the FCC or however you license, you know, your, mm -hmm. your station frequency. So they spent all this money. Like, we really relied on that in promise. reliance on having a certain budget. So now, if you don't give uh, what you promised to give, they're actually, uh, it's to their detriment that they're in a worse place than they would have been than if you had never promised at all. Now, what if it was, like, unreasonable for them to, to you know, to rely on that? You, like, you, it was like late night at, at a party or something. They're like, yeah, I'll give a million dollars, you know. Uh, I mean, that, right. that wouldn't be enforceable, right? I mean, there has to be a, a, at least a, 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 a reasonable element to relying on the promise, right? Well, this is a, a uh, equitable cause of action. And what I mean by equitable is that this is not a legal cause of action. And in the, you know, in, in our world, there's basically two kinds of actions. There's equity and there's law. Mm -hmm. Law is very strict. You know, a lot of it looks to, you know, certain cases or code. And if you meet these requirements, you automatically get the benefit. But equity, on the other hand, is more about fairness and justice mm -hmm. overall. It's not about rigid rules. It's a lot more flexible. And so there, both sides have to have clean hands. There's this maximum of clean hands. So if you want to win at equity, you have to be, you have to have clean hands. And if you are unreasonable in your expectations, that's the kind of thing that might undermine your case. So, you know, if, if, uh, if say a five-year-old says, I'm going to give a million dollars a day to NPR, mm -hmm. Most five-year-olds have nowhere near that kind of money at their disposal, not to mention their inability to contract. Right. But even if you thought that this was a very sophisticated five-year-old <laughs> and you want them to be on the hook for $365 million, it's just not reasonable to, to think... start, you know, you're, you're, you're buying a, you know, like a monorail for the NPR <laughs> lot. And, yeah. Right. You're, yeah. you're getting a, a gold uh, microphones <laughs> for your on-air talent. It's just not reasonable to think that. And so you can't plausibly assert that kind of claim inequity. But what if you, what if, okay, in, in a legitimate situation, as you posited, you know, to begin, where somebody says, I will pledge, and it sounds very reasonable, you know, a certain amount, and, uh, and a company does rely on that, or an individual relies on, on such a promise. Uh, can you expound on that? 
Right. Well, at least uh, I would assume that three hundred sixty-five dollars a year is a a uh, easily accomplished uh, donation for a typical donor to NPR. Okay. In fact, I imagine that some donors give far greater than that. Mm -hmm. So that would not be the kind of uh, promise that would lead, at least not me, if I were mm -hmm. a chancellor or vice chancellor, to say this is not reasonable. You know, I think it depends on the circumstances and it depends on the charity. Is there any Delaware case law that you know of that touches on promissory stuff? I did look into this actually and I found an interesting case in Delaware. It's called uh, uh, Donald Harmon versus State of Delaware, Delaware Harness Racing Commission, and it's a 2013 Delaware Supreme Court oh, wow. case. So there's this guy Harmon, and uh, he was, uh, hold on, I have it here. He was the presiding judge to oversee uh, racing for this Harness Racing Commission. Mm -hmm. Now, while he was serving in that capacity, there was an allegation that he had done some wrongdoing, that he had falsified some uh, qualifying, sorry, he falsified some judging sheets. All right, and I, I, I'm a big fan of thoroughbred racing, and I know a little bit about harness racing. Uh, harness racing, for those of you who don't know, are where the, uh, the horses pull the jockeys in, in, a, in a wheeled cart, you know, mm -hmm. so to speak. Uh, used to be a brand new Iron Raceway in Delaware, but uh, you can still find it. Uh, pretty popular places nearby. And by falsifying a judging sheet, I would assume uh, when horses finish uh, racetracks, uh, we'll have somebody compile the results and probably put a comment or how far back a horse finished and say, the horse finished, you know, strongly or the horse finished gamely, or the horse was fading. Uh, it sounds to me like by judging the sheet, the allegations were that the person in charge uh, kind of fudged, fudged those in favor of the horse. There's some, sub, some uh, yeah. subjectivism to yeah. it. Is that a word? Subjectivity, <laughs> that, uh, that he may have... Again, you know, allegedly. Mm -hmm. Right, right, allegedly. So there was a uh, state police investigation into this matter uh, he was uh, accused of a misdemeanor and a felony, and during the investigation, he was suspended from from his position as presiding judge. He asked the commission if he were to be acquitted of these charges. He was charged with the, with the felony and the misdemeanor. He asked if he were to be acquitted of both, if he would be reinstated, and the commission told him that he would. So he relied on that, uh, and when he was eventually acquitted, and he did not get another job because he was relying on the fact that they would honor their promise that he'd be reinstated if he were acquitted. Right. Harmon uh, presented to the jury facts that, that showed that he had other job offers that he didn't take. For instance, he could have worked with a horse, uh, but then he would have been disqualified from becoming a judge when, that, when he was able to be reinstated because there was a waiting period. I guess you can't, you can't work with so, so there's the reliance to the detriment that you're talking about. Right. right. So, so he did have some detriment. He gave up the opportunity to other work for a period of time. He was acquitted eventually of all the charges and he went to the commission to get reinstated and they refused to reinstate him. So there, there's his uh, you know, promissory estoppel. He, uh, there was a promise given, he relied on it to his detriment and the promise wasn't honored. And it was reasonable to assume that the promise would be honored. The commission has the ability to make these kinds of promises. And uh, I believe, Rob, we looked at that's not the first time that in an employment uh, arena that uh, that promissory estoppel has been has been uh, upheld in the state of Delaware uh, on that issue. Right. Uh, interestingly, in this Harmon case, the uh, the Supreme Court said that even though the state generally is not 
subject to promissory estoppel. It is subject to promissory estoppel limited to employment claims. So whereas it might not be liable for promissory estoppel if there was some other kind of contract that they reneged on, say uh, uh, I had a uh, car company, I made cars and I wanted to sell them to the state police. They said they would buy a thousand of them, but they never signed a contract and I made a thousand cars, delivered them, didn't sell them to other buyers, and now I want some kind of damages. That I might not be able to bring on the promissory wow. estoppel claim. But with employment, it's different. But with employment, it's different. Wow, that's a very interesting, uh, interesting delineation to make with the state of Delaware law. Nice stuff, Rob. Thank you. Huh. Anything else that, uh, that we should add? I know we're running out of time here. Well, there was one last point, if we have time, mm -hmm. I wanted to, uh, to talk about, and I think, you know, we were talking about consideration. Promissory estoppel is one area where a promise uh, can be enforced without consideration. And uh, another area, and this is fairly unique in Delaware, is contracts under seal do not require consideration either. I remember learning this in law school, and it was presented to me at the time as a very old, arcane you know, people used to have these signet rings and uh, you would stick them in wax, wax and, right? and mm -hmm. make a wax seal on the contract and those contracts did not uh, require uh, consideration. So if you said, NPR, I'm going to give you a dollar a day and you put your signet ring to that contract, even though there's no other consideration, even if they don't go and make their budget based on that, so there's no promissory estoppel, they could still enforce a contract under seal. But uh, in law school they said most states have done away with the, the uh, with those kinds of contracts. They just don't have them anymore. But Delaware does. Wow! In fact, there is a uh, 2010 Delaware Supreme Court case, no, sorry, Delaware Chancery case, Sunrise Ventures LLC versus Rehoboth Canal Ventures LLC. And I'll put that in the show notes, you don't have to remember the name. But it basically talked about contracts under seal and affirmed that Delaware still has them. And not only do you not need consideration for those kind of contracts, so it can be a one-sided deal, uh, you know, I promise to do X and the other side promises nothing. You don't need consideration. But the other part of that is there's a 20-year statute of limitations, which is an incredibly long statute of limitations for, for any kind of claim, not to mention a contract claim. Now, uh, for, for uh, listeners who may not be all that familiar, you know, a lot of people hear the term statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. What does it really mean? Well, it's basically the time that you have from from uh, you know your starting point, which for a contract is generally, you know, at the execution of that contract, mm -hmm. and the end point is the last date when you can bring a claim in court. So if uh, if I said Joe, I'll sell you my car for five thousand dollars, and you said yes, and we sign our contract and we write seal next to both of our names, the uh, the Sunrise Ventures case made it clear that both names have to have seal next to it to show that it's an under seal contract. Then. Uh, 20 years later, if you say, Rob, this car is a piece of junk, you could sue me for, for breach of some kind of warranty if, uh, if it applies under the contract. Wow. Very interesting, Rob. Uh, I did not actually know that the, that the seals were, I know in most states they were, uh, they were uh, obsolete, but in Delaware you can have a contract still under steel. In fact, last year the uh, <clears throat> legislature passed a law to allow broader use of that 20-year statute of limitations, uh, even in some matters that aren't under seal. It was, I thought it was kind of a, a, a odd premise, but the push for the law was to help New York lawyers doing mergers and acquisitions deals in Delaware who don't know Delaware law, 
which I don't know if we should really bend over backwards to help out-of-state lawyers practice Delaware law. Delaware's not usually one to help out-of-state attorneys in their own state either, but... So it was, it's it was interesting. interesting to hear the conversation about it, but the, uh, the issue was for these mergers and acquisitions contracts for big companies swallowing up almost as big companies, they wanted to have a long statute of limitations. And so instead of putting it under seal, because I guess New York doesn't have this, this ability to contract under seal, they just specified that the statute of limitations was 20 years. And I guess before they passed this law last year, you couldn't just extend the statute that way. You really had to put seal next to all the party's signatures. Excellent. All right, Rob, uh, then, then I guess to, uh, to wrap up today, four main elements to, to a contract that we've learned offer, acceptance, consideration, and an intent to be legally bound. With also, don't forget that fifth element, you have to have the capacity to be legally bound. Don't be minor Rob Kleiner, enter into <laughs> a contract with him because he'll get out of it. Uh, there's, of course, the equitable remedy of promissory estoppel that Rob right. talked about, which is an option. And if you really want to surprise somebody and get into a binding contract in Delaware, go with the old wax seal. <laughs> <laughs> or just the word seal. Or just the word seal. You don't really need the wax anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and also, if, uh, if you don't want to get the flu, don't rely on the carbolic smoke ball. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, my name's Rob Kleiner. You can reach me on Twitter at Monday Night Rob. And uh, my name's Joe Kenya. You can reach me on Twitter at Monday Law Joe. If you have any uh, ideas for future episodes or questions about this episode or any of our past episodes, we'd be happy to bring that up uh, next time we get together to record. Absolutely. Uh, thanks again for listening. This is Joe and Rob signing off. All right. Have a good one.